and welcome to Maybe Today Matinee, a podcast about all things film before you were born. I'm Monica. I'm David. This month, we're watching animated movies. And today, we're talking about Toy Animation's 1959 film, Magic Boy. A boy named Sasuke and his older sister Oyu live peacefully in a village with a menagerie of cuddly forest creatures. One day, one of the fawns is captured by an eagle and dropped into a lake. Sasuke and the mother deer pursue the fawn, and the doe is consumed by a sea monster in the lake, whom Sasuke learns is actually Yasha, a witch. Oyu says Yasha once terrorized the people of Japan when it was a new country, but a king had transformed her into a harmless salamander. Now, though, she has returned in her original form to wreak havoc. In the night, Sasuke steals away to learn magic so that he can fight Yasha. While on his journey, he gets into a scuffle with a gang of bandits who are recruited to serve Yasha the witch. As Sasuke is escaping the bandits, he encounters an old man who advises him that there is a hermit living at the top of a mountain who can teach him magic. Sasuke journeys to the top of the mountain and finds the hermit, who is in fact the very same old man. Sasuke spends three years training on the mountain. Meanwhile, Yasha's gang of bandits are getting into trouble and they plunder and burn down the village where Oyu is still living. The local prince, Yukimura, is alerted to the bandits' activity and learns from Oyu that Sasuke has been gone for years learning magic. Yasha eventually learns that Sasuke is learning magic to fight her and she kidnaps Oyu in order to draw him out. Sasuke returns from his training and sneaks into the prince's castle. Sasuke, Yukimura, and an assortment of forest creatures, rebel bandits, a village child, and a palace servant band together to go rescue Oyu. They find her hanging by her wrists from a cliff, and there Sasuke encounters Yasha. Though at first he is weak to her powers, he eventually is able to overcome her, and she disintegrates. In gratitude, Yukimura asks Sasuke to work for him at the castle, to which Sasuke happily agrees. All right, David. So what were your thoughts on Magic Boy? Uh, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I I had a really good time watching it. Oh, I'm really glad to hear that. Okay, let's get right into it because I think this is a really interesting movie. Okay, so actually I want to make a note about this movie, something that I mentioned in our podcast on Yojimbo, which was our first episode Um, I talked there about how in English language media, Japanese names are represented as given name first and surname last, even though the Japanese order is surname first, given name last. And that's the convention that we follow in our podcast. However, a little wrinkle there is that when you are talking about historical figures, maybe from uh, the 19th century or earlier, Even in English, you follow the Japanese order. So um, when we're talking about this and you try to Google stuff, if you see the names kind of switched around in different contexts, that's the reason. Um, I don't know why it's that way, but that's the convention I'm going to follow. So that's just a heads up. Okay, so the reason actually that I was talking about names in a modern context as well as in a historical context is because the character of Sarutobi Sasuke, who is the little ninja boy in this movie, he is actually a very famous character. And he was a legendary ninja who aided the warlord Sanada Yukimura, um, who was a real guy. 
And he was the leading general um, defending the Toyotomi clan at the siege of Osaka in 1615. He died there. So it's a really good thing that Sasuke was not a real ninja because he would have died too. So legendarily, the prince that you see in the movie is based on a real warlord character. In any case, though, Sasuke uh, is kind of omnipresent in uh, ninja media in Japan. So if you know Osamu Tezuka, he's known as the father of manga. He did a manga called I Am Sarutobi based on that character. If you're familiar with newer series like Yu-Gi-Oh! and Naruto, there are uh, characters in there that are also based on Sasuke. And there's just tons and tons and tons. So he pops up a lot. I've just this seems like a weird question, but I was wondering, David, what do you know about Ninja? Uh, very little. Well, actually, I wanted to ask you about this because I saw in the notes that you prepared for the episode, um, and as you posed the question, so Ninja is actually the plural form of Ninja. Is that correct? Yeah. In in general, in Japanese, you don't distinguish the singular and the plural of nouns there's exceptions but in general you don't so in english also a lot of times um japanese borrowed words are not pluralized with an s i did not know that uh i i think i am probably a lot of um i guess a lot of american kids growing up uh like in the 90s when i did i i never really knew about like ninja as an actual like historical thing right a historical term i think most of my experience with it has been kind of you know kind of like with this film uh as something that's more i guess imaginary and like fictitious almost almost kind of in the same way that like medieval knights are usually given like kind of magical qualities and like newer fiction about them or whatever so there's kind of that connection between like knight and like the historical term knight is a little bit lost I think probably the same thing with like ninja, except more so uh, within the States. So actually, that's a really good point you bring up. And actually, your experience, I think, in a lot of ways is similar to the experience of uh, in Japan, because even though there were real life things called ninjas, which were like mercenaries or spies um, who were around like maybe starting in the 12th century, um, until like maybe the 1600s or so. What most Japanese think of when they think of ninja is kind of based on a popular idea of them that came around in the 1800s, which kind of associated them with like um, magic and mystery and folklore. Um, and then that concept of them got to America. But one thing that was interesting about Magic Boy and that I'll get to a little bit later is that this movie was brought to American audiences by MGM. But when they advertised it in the U.S., they advertised the Sasuke character as being a samurai rather than a ninja because the popular concept of a ninja in America was kind of as this kind of mercenary kind of sketchy character. Um, and they wanted to make sure people knew that he was like a good guy. So that was like a little way that they changed they changed the translation of what the character was. To add to that, MGM um, uh, claimed that the the Japanese title of the film was The Adventures of the Little Samurai, uh, which is not accurate. Uh huh. Right. And that and this was even though some of their advertising actually portrayed him as a ninja. So anyway, this kind of thing happens a lot when we you know. Uh, translate and localize media. 
this is a bit of a tangent, but just in the way of a plug, there is a video game journalist named uh, Tim Rogers who does a lot of writing about localization. And he actually did a really extensive YouTube series on the localization of um, the PlayStation video game Final Fantasy VII. Uh, and so obviously that's pretty far removed from this film, but I think just in the way when we're talking about how things change, especially in terms of how things change when they're brought over from Japan to the United States, that's also a really kind of good source, I think, of looking at, at what that process is like. So um, anyone who's curious, I would recommend checking out those videos. Um, so let's talk about toy animation. So you probably w- are familiar with the company toy. They're still around today. I guess the company lineage is a little bit complicated, but basically toy animation was founded in 1956. It still exists today. It's a subsidiary of toy company, which does like TV and all kinds of other media. And at least at the time that toy animation came to be, it was also a subsidiary or maybe toy. I think toy company as a whole was a subsidiary of Tokyo Yokohama Yokohama Rail Company. Companies in South Korea and Japan are kind of notoriously part of large conglomerates. I mean, that's the case in the U.S. as well. But in, in East Asia, you'll have like one gigantic company that has five million subsidiaries. It's involved in all these different areas. So in any case, Toy Animation was responsible for this film, um, and this was actually the second color feature film in Japan, the first of which was The Tale of the White Serpent. Hi, everyone. Really quick, I believe I said The Tale of the White Serpent was the first Japanese film in color. Actually, what I meant to say was it was the first animated Japanese film in color. Thanks. And then both Magic Boy and The Tale of the White Serpent were later released by MGM in the United States in 1961. And um, actually, my first choice for this podcast was The Tale of the White Serpent, but it was too hard to get a copy of that with subtitles to watch. The kind of funny thing is that there's a lot more information out there about that movie rather than this one. So some of the information that I'm talking about in here applies to The Tale of the White Serpent, and I'm kind of guessing it also applies to this movie, so just keep that in mind. So the directors here were Akira Daikubara, who is also one of the animators, and Taiji Yabushita. This movie was also the first widescreen anime film, and as you will doubtless realize when you watch it, it's it's patterned after the kind of Disney model that was well-established for over two decades at that point. And Toy Animation was the first Japanese company to do animation on an industrial scale, um, so much so that... It, it caused a lot of consternation with the animators who kind of felt that industry was emphasized over creativity. But basically, at Toei Animation, they wanted to become the uh, the Disney of the East, right? Because they had seen um, how Snow White, when it was released in Japan, did really, really well among women and children. And so they wanted to make their own beautiful, very expensive movies uh, for their own market, because prior to that, animation had been just in black and white or just shorts, and I'm going to get into a lot more deal about into a lot more detail about that in a moment. But I was just kind of wondering, how do you think that this movie succeeded or failed compared to its Disney inspiration, either Snow White or any of the other movies that would have come out by by the late 1950s? 
I mean, I I think it was tremendously successful. I think in in a lot of ways, it's very obvious a distinction between this and Disney, um, if for nothing else, in like budgetary reasons, because this came out. Uh, so this came out in 1959, and I actually believe that that's the same year that um, uh, Disney's Sleeping Beauty came out. Yeah, that's right. Um, and so I know that that one's not super popular with even Disney aficionados, but I personally really like it. Is it um, not? Yeah, that's what I've read, that people don't Why? really care for it. I don't know. <laughs> I love it, though. It's so beautiful. It, isn't it pretty? Right. Well... Exactly right. So if you if you go and watch that film, and I think you kind of compare it to back to back Sleeping Beauty and Magic Boy, you can definitely see the kind of the budgetary restriction that Toei would have been under. Um, but at the same time, I, I think that doesn't that doesn't necessarily mean that it looks worse. It's very Disney inspired, but it has a very distinctive look particularly towards the end of the film, I felt like it started kind of uh, uh, carving out more of its own space uh, visually. When he has a climactic fight with the witch Yasha, I thought it was it was interesting. And this might also be kind of like my experience with anime is, a you know, a lot of stuff that was coming out in the 90s. So I always default to thinking about Dragon Ball Z. But I thought it was interesting in this film, towards the end, we start getting sequences that, that are kind of like that. Like two figures kind of using mystical powers and like a lot of, of force. And that's just not, that's not necessarily something you would see as much in a Disney film. Like to go back to um, Sleeping Beauty, the climax of that film is really about animating uh maleficent as the dragon whereas here it's about this this kind of battle between these two figures you know i I think that's a really good point especially because when i watched this movie at the beginning there's a really long sequence where you're pretty much just watching the little animals scamper around and it was almost like more disney than disney i was like this is a bit excessive like when are we getting some (laughs) plot you know (laughs) um i'm kind of wondering since Disney had about maybe a 20-year head start on Toy because Disney's first full-length animated feature was Snow White in 1937. How might you compare this movie to Snow White? Gosh, you know, it has been such a long time since I saw Snow White. Um, uh, I, I would say in some ways Snow White is a lot more of a horror film. And here, there, I think there's certainly horror elements yasha especially i thought was terrifying there's something about this period of like animated villains that really scares me so there are those elements here but i think we spend so much time with a protagonist who's like severely competent um (laughs) to, to an excessive degree that there's not really there's not really the opportunity to build that much fear over any element whereas in Snow White, it felt like there was a lot of attention brought to making like making Snow White feel vulnerable, right? We start off with the the um the the hunter, right? Who like can't he has a box that he's gonna put her heart into and he just can't bear to do it, and that's a very terrifying scene. And you have that constant sensation of the protagonist being in danger, and that's not like at all the objective here. Right, right. Although I got to say, 
when he first starts fighting the witch at the end, he kind of sucks. I'm like, what happened? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's kind of the thing is that like we have. So I really enjoyed this movie, but it's it's pretty. The plot is pretty bonkers. And one of the big things about it is that there there seem to be no parameters to our protagonist's skill set. So he goes to the mountains to like learn magic and the most clear ability he learns is like the ability to to disappear um but other than that he's kind of like throwing fireballs and he can kind of fly around and and uh to steal a harry potter term like apparate right like he can kind of do whatever he wants and then he gets to the fight with yasha and it's like he can't do any of those things anymore Right, right, right. I think I was like, oh, get it together, little dude. Like, <laughs> what is this, like stage fright? <laughs> okay, so I'm, we'll get probably get back to the plot a little bit later. I have a lot to say about animation, though. So let's get into it. Uh, so when Toei Animation made um, Tale of the White Serpent, which was their first feature, like I said, it was the first time the animation had been kind of industrialized, and they didn't have enough animators, really, for the scale of the project. So they took on a lot of people who had less than one year of experience animating. They started to call the com- the company Toy University because while they were making the movie, they were also training all these newbie animators to know like what they were supposed to be doing. Talking about Tale of the White Serpent, you had two key animators. You had uh, Yasuji Mori, who did the animals, and Akira Daikubara, who did the people, and he was also one of the directors. They came to toy animation from Japan Animated Films, which was like a smaller company that had kind of been subsumed into toy. and. Okay, so I'm going to have to check with you about this. But what I read was that uh, Mori and Dakubara, when they were making um, Tale of the White Serpent, when they were key animators, their role was much bigger than key animators normally because Tale of the White Serpent didn't have any an- dedicated animation directors and didn't have any storyboarders. So that meant that Mori and Daikubara just had, like, a ton more to do. Um, And I just wanted to run that past you because I know when we were talking about another movie earlier, you were like, how can there be a movie without a storyboard? Do you have any insight about this? I don't. This is speaking without any specific knowledge to this issue. But uh, I... I would imagine that that, that would have just meant that they had to do the storyboards instead, like real quick and dirty, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think, like, it, it doesn't really surprise me because I think especially, like you were saying, being at the early point of the industrialization of animation, having people jostled around and not enough people doing things and, like, having titles, that I mean, that's another big part is that, like, titles especially early on in an industry job titles will kind of change and shift and might mean different things to like different projects or different companies. Right. So this is a kind of a notorious problem actually in the uh, video game industry is that like, depending on the company you go to work for, you could be doing the exact same thing and have two different titles Okay, that makes sense. So basically, somebody must somebody was directing the animation and somebody was doing the storyboarding, but nobody had those titles, right? 
Sure. I I think this is also something like anyone who's kind of done, if you've made a small film, like especially really, really small films, or you made a movie with some friends in high school or something, you'll kind of understand the idea that like these, the, the titles and the responsibilities wind up getting blurred together quite easily. Okay, that makes sense. So Mori and Daikubara, who were the key animators on Tale of the White Serpent, for that movie... They also taught all the in-betweens. And if you're unfamiliar with what an in-between is, basically in animation, um, you'll have like a key animator who does the major frames. But then you have in-betweens who are drawing all the frames in between those major frames. And like the more frames that they draw, the smoother the animation is. It's very, very tedious work. And that's why you hire people to do all that in-betweening that you don't want to do. Um, so that was the the system on Tale of the White Serpent. Once they got to Magic Boy, um, they changed it up a little bit. So Mori and Daikubara were joined by three other key animators. And then you have five seconds. So they have what's called a seconding system. So basically you have the, and you have like an animation hierarchy where you have the key animators at the top, the seconds in the middle, and the in-betweens at the bottom. And the seconds would kind of maybe animate some of the more, like, difficult motions and be responsible for that. Although, um, from what I read, the seconds were still just credited as in-betweens on Magic Boy. And, by the way, uh, if you're curious about a lot more detail about the animation, once we talk about our sources at the end of this podcast, you can go look at those and see all the detail you would ever want. But, basically... You know, as we mentioned for this movie, the influence of Disney is just so clear in this early in these early toy movies compared to their later work. Um, so what I read is that the animators would they would take out American books on animation from the library, and then sometimes they would like translate and copy them by hand so that they would have references for when they were making their own movies. And just like Disney did, they would also do rotoscoping for human characters, right? Which is where you would film an actual person doing the movements you want in the animation and then basically trace your animation to make uh, those movements natural. And that's what Daikubara did, the animator who was in charge of the human characters. Mori, on the other hand, who did the little anim- the animals, and this is general because... By the time they got to uh, Magic Boy, they had more uh, animators who were working with them. But in general, still, uh, Mori was in charge of the critters, and he could just kind of use his animation because they weren't, like, rotoscoping a monkey, right? He kind of developed... It's almost like his creatures are in a way a little bit more interesting because he just developed each of their different gaits and behaviors so that you could kind of recognize them not just by like how big they were, their particular features, but how how they walked and that kind of thing. Um, so something that a lot of people note in Tale of the White Serpent is how Daikubara and Mori kind of, their animation styles are so different that it feels like there's a clash, like you're almost watching two different movies. And given that it, um, in Magic Boy, you had more animators um, working. I just wonder, David, if you noticed a similar clash in styles in this movie. 
I'm no expert, but I think it there's a pretty clear distinction between the kind of more cutesy animals and then the human figures here. Especially, I would say more so than kind of more recent animated films. Like, I think one of my favorite Disney tropes is that uh, characters with horses, the horses will typically mimic the personality of the character. <laughs> um, Sean Yu in Mulan. I, uh, uh, yeah, he he looks all mean, and then his horse looks mean too. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that I, I think that would be an example of of something that, like, even though obviously horses and people are, are very different, the styles kind of meld better. Where I I think, like you were saying, I I think here there's a pretty clear distinction between, for example, Yasha and then like the little um the little monkey pal guy. Yeah, and, and you can also look up on YouTube clips from Tale of the White Serpent. And I think that Daikubara was known for having characters with like very kind of like harsh, sudden movements. And you can just watch clips where you where you can see that contrast. And Mori's characters are kind of moving more delicately and smoothly. And um, it's interesting. With the animals here, I think you can see more of the roots of kind of what the eventual look that anime would take on, right? That trope. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the human figures, I think, less so. They look, they the human figures tend to look more like Disney than kind of modern anime figures do. Yeah, I think that's true. Do you have like any, anything specific that made you think that way? The two bandits who are like bad and then they protect the little girl. Those two figures, those two characters really reminded me of kind of comic relief characters from Disney films, especially like 90s Disney films. Uh, So like Belle's dad in um, Beauty and the Beast or to reference Mulan again. um, uh, What's his name? The shorter soldier with a beard from that film. Ah, Yao. Yao. I think seeing them as well as the leader of the bandits, that really reminded me of like Disney, Disney animation. Yeah, and I think, too, um, we'll get into this more later, but, I mean, this this film was kind of pre, like, stereotypical anime saucerized, right? Um, mm-hmm. It wasn't that the characters were realistic looking, but they definitely had a different style, and I think it seems a lot more clearly influenced by Disney. Japanese animation prior to about the year 2000, there was more labor spent on painting and filming than on the actual initial animation. And that, of course, is because uh, the painting was done all by hand, right? You have your pencil drawing that gets transferred to a cell that gets painted by hand and then gets fed into a machine that films it. At Toei, at the time, um, the drawing was mostly done by men and the painting was mostly done by women based on the idea for some reason that men were better at drawing and women, I don't know, saw color better. Um, but also the the painters got paid a lot less and that fed into the labor disputes within Toei, which is an, an echo of what also went on at Disney, Right. No, I was just going to mention that, like, yeah, that's that's like the ad- identical situation at Disney. Um, also, I really love these 
like bizarre instances of misogyny where it's like women they're good painters and deserve to be paid. Like, where did this come from? <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, so so actually, because I think I told you I was watching a uh, 50s Disney animation documentary kind of TV special. Um, and I saw that in some of the video, there were women working on the animation. Was the labor kind of distributed similarly at Disney, to your knowledge? About 10 years ago, I saw a documentary about Disney's um, uh, labor practices uh, and I think I think it was a similar distribution. Like I I seem to recall it being another like men did most of the the drawing and women would paint, and also I guess like ink occasionally. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can't. It's been a while, you know. Okay, so backing up a little bit, and you kind of touched on this already, but I guess prior to seeing Magic Boy, what did you, what typically came to mind for you when you thought of Japanese animation? So I think, I, I think mostly 90s anime, maybe a little bit of uh, 80s, but mostly 90s. So like Dragon Ball Z, um, Cowboy Bebop, Akira. Uh, kind of that, like that period for for anime was usually what stuck out, and so those those kinds of tropes of like very very big eyes, right, the saucer eyes, and very kind of lanky character designs, and like mm-hmm. some of the protagonists who would be kind of outrageously tall with these very long legs. Right. Okay. So that's kind of kind of the same for me. Magic Boy and Toy's other early films really contrast a lot with TV animation and their later styles. So if you notice in this movie there is a lack of black outlines for the characters. If you if you watch um well, I can't say modern because I haven't seen a lot of super recent anime and I've heard it might have changed a little bit, but Definitely within that 90s uh, wave of anime, everything, all the characters were done in black outline. But in Magic Boy, you'll see that the outline matches the fill color. And that's um, due to the fact probably that the tracing and the painting were in the same department at Toei. So basically, initially when they did animation, like I said, you have to transfer the pencil drawing to a cell. In the beginning, somebody had to do the tracing by hand. They put the cell over the pencil drawing and traced it in ink. So since they were doing it by hand, they could pick different colors to do the tracing in order to match what they were going to fill it with later. Um, But later, with the evolution of technology, they were able to just use a machine to copy the pencil drawings onto the cells, and those copies were always black outlines, and that's how you wound up with those black outlines that's so characteristic of later Japanese animation. Um, something else that's interesting, I thought, just just from watching, is that, okay, so we know that this movie was a big to-do, so it probably, like, it had a pretty good budget compared to a lot of anime that you'll see, um, but there was... Uh, like many more frames per second, right? Than what you see in kind of your typical TV animation or maybe even newer movies. I I, I don't quote me on that, but that's just kind of how I felt about it. And then I also noticed that in this movie, the character's mouth movements fit the dialogue, right? Whereas something that I think is so famous about anime is that their mouths are always just open, close, open, close, open, close. <laughs> right? Um, right. 
And I know that that, that's got to be like, that's easier, right? And cheaper. But also, I kind of wonder if, uh, I kind of wonder if that's not kind of convenient if you're planning on exporting your animation to a bunch of different countries where it won't match the dub language anyway. Sure. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if that's another reason that they do that, but that's something I thought of. Kind of like you, I haven't seen any anime probably from the last decade, I don't think. Um, so I'm I'm pretty out of the loop. But I would imagine if it still gets done at the, this point, it's probably more just because it's a trope. But I don't, you know, there are a lot of cost cutting measures that are used, but that would strike me as being a very, a very strange one to implement just for cost cutting. Something I was going to ask you is, Japan is still making tons and tons of traditional animation. Um, And I just wondered what you think we're missing in America as a result of Disney's abandonment of traditional animation. Of course, there are other smaller companies that still do it. But when like the big guy is no longer doing it, what are we kind of missing out on? Well, so I think uh, uh, to your point about smaller companies doing it, I had mentioned this before as well, that there's a lot of interesting traditional animation going on on Cartoon Network, as well as uh, I think the video game industry, especially in like independent games, there's a lot of like kind of 2D style uh, animation that I think is is very interesting. But kind of just from the perspective of Disney doing it or not, I guess my concern isn't necessarily so much over like what kind of what has become of traditional animation in the West. But I think we are losing out on seeing like really kind of Disney big budget two dimensional animation, which almost to the extent that like we don't exactly know what that would look like. To cite a recent film, uh, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, which came out uh, December 2019, I believe. December 2018, perhaps. Anyway, so that's very like there's a lot of like kind of um. Uh, CG that's used there and there are a lot of different animation techniques going on in there and it's clearly very computerized but it's done in the style of like 2d animation to try and replicate a comic book look and as someone who's totally burnt out on superhero movies like I was blown away by this thing because of how good it looked and it just it was so distinctive in appearance and that was um that was a Sony film and Disney has kind of in some ways given up on being a company that visually explores because we get again periodically we get Pixar movies that are roughly just like higher resolution versions of the previous films that they've released and now Disney's like ever since they bought Pixar Disney's in-house animation studio Uh, produces things that are roughly the same as like the Pixar animation. And so we're just getting iterations of like the same idea. And it's kind of, it is kind of a shame. I think I'm, I'm pretty bored with it. I would like to see more work venturing outward because that's what, that's what Pixar originally was. Right. Um, Do you happen to know if the animators working at Pixar, are they literally also doing the quote unquote Disney animation projects? Like, is it the same group of people? Uh, So I don't know that it's exactly the same group of people, but I I do think there's there's cross pollination. And again, if if someone has an article about this, I'd be really curious to read that. But I think it's pretty undeniable, like how much Disney's in-house 
uh, animated production team, like how much their work improved after the acquisition of Pixar. So a few days ago, I watched Moana, um, which I hadn't seen, and I think came out maybe 2016 or so. And um, I enjoyed it a lot. And I had read that originally they were going to do traditional animation for that movie. Um, but they changed their minds apparently because they thought that it benefit like the the ocean is is its own character in, in that movie actually, and they thought that that visually benefited from being computer animated. But I gotta say, I kind of it would it would just be so nice to have a big traditional animated movie again. To kind of just uh, cap that off a little bit. Uh, speaking from our bias, so I don't know. We may have. Um younger listeners on here but uh when you and i were both growing up we were kind of during the uh during the disney renaissance so from uh little mermaid in 1989 to uh mulan in 1998 and i think um i think uh maybe tarzan in 99 we uh we kind of had the benefit of growing up during this period when like almost every summer there was a disney animated like traditionally animated film and that was a big thing like i remember we would uh, you and i we would go with uh with her mom and her, her grandma and we would go and see these things and they were big and explosive and fun and it was great and and so i think i i definitely think it's a shame that disney is not exploring 2d animation as much but like we are certainly speaking from kind of a biased perspective right like that's part of our nostalgia it totally is um yeah also i is that maybe this is again just bias but i always have a feeling like traditional animation has a warmth that computer animation lacks is do you think there's anything to that i mean i i agree with you i don't i don't i don't know that that's the type of thing that we could say is objective so so i should say when we talk about computer generated animation a lot of times what we're doing is talking about the pixar style but the pixar style is not like the be all end all of cg animation right but that's Mm -hmm. kind of that's how we imagine it and so i would agree as far as that company that style goes it does feel weirdly cold a lot of times i think Mm -hmm. The only real exception to that I found was um, Ratatouille. I think that's actually a really brilliant Pixar film. That's I would argue that's their best. And I think, to your point, I think because that actually recreates that sense of warmth. Oh, I haven't seen Ratatouille. I should watch that. I would recommend it. The mm. um, it it's also helped along by the main character being a rat, and like that's oh yeah. <laughs> Um, so, so Magic Boy, as I said earlier, was the first Japanese animated feature to be brought to America. And then Tale of the White Serpent um, was brought over, I think, the next month. They both came over in 1961. Yes. Um, however, they were not particularly successful. And really, it was the cheap TV imports that, that became more popular, I think. You know, because they they were cheap and you could just like put them on TV and all the kids would watch them. Um, Speed Racer comes to mind um, from the 70s, 70s, 60s, 60s. So the last thing I wanted to say was that I 
guess you may disagree with me, but I feel like this is the first movie that we've talked about in our whole podcast that is really a children's movie with, I think, honestly, like very little inherent appeal for adults. It's it's kind of a question because I think you might disagree. Like I think like a lot of animated features are well known, even TV shows too. A lot of kids media is well known for being for kids, but having aspects of it that are appealing to adults, like having some kind of humor that kids won't get. And I think that's definitely the case for like The Three Caballeros, which was our first film in this theme, which you could almost argue is not even a kid's film at all, just because it's so kind of wacky. But this movie really felt to me like it didn't have a lot of adult appeal. Do you think so? Yeah, I mean, I think this and this kind of leads us down the road over exactly what the distinction between like children's and adults film or even fiction is. Uh, I see what you're getting at, and I think it's accurate because even the um, the like '90s Disney Renaissance films we were talking about, um, and especially now with Pixar and Disney animated, there's there's a clearly a concerted effort to have a lot of, um, I wouldn't say adult humor, it's not super raunchy or anything, but, like, have jokes that are going to work for parents that, like, you know, the seven-year-old isn't, you know, isn't really going to care about but will work for them. And there, there's certainly none of that here. And also, I don't... I would be hard-pressed to say that there's any kind of, like, subtext or, or messaging programmed in. I think there's there's always something to be read about, like, the period something is released and how that's reflected, but I don't... They, they were clearly setting out to make children's entertainment, and they did that. But I don't... I, I become kind of hesitant to say that, like, oh, it's purely children's entertainment, because I think when I hear that, I think of, like... I don't know, like Nick Jr. or like a TV program about a colorful blob that's like teaching kids to count where there's where it's really <laughs> like, don't, you know, like, don't watch it. This is horrifying if you're past the age of three or whatever. Oh, you um, didn't grow up with Sesame Street, though, or at least I don't think you watched it that much because Sesame Street definitely had adult appeal, at least in the earlier days. Nah, I watched uh, Barney, and when I grew up, Mom told me how much she hated that show. <laughs> <laughs> but I loved it. I don't know. <laughs> I think here with this film, there aren't the jokes for adults. There's not really any kind of adult theming or kind of complex characterization. But I think kind of as if we break film especially like animation down into a series of of different paintings i think this has tremendous merit kind of along those lines i think that's what makes it not just a children's film to me although i I don't know if i'm kind of getting into semantics well i think too and this is something that we've talked a lot about um thinking about how people would perceive it at the time there would have also been an aspect of novelty that we don't have now, right? The first, or well, I guess second, second Japanese full-length color animated feature would have had novelty for adults, and that could have added to their enjoyment. Um, I guess there's also a caveat that we've made in the past where, like, there could be aspects that we're missing because we had to watch this movie with rather substandard subtitles. So, you know, who who knows what gets lost in translation as well. Although there's not a whole lot of dialogue in this movie, too. So, okay, like you were saying, there wasn't that much dialogue. Uh, the 
critters, particularly like the squirrel and the monkey, were they not saying any words at all? They're just making noises. And I think it'll be like, it's kind of like up to the subtitle subtitler, whether they want to like subtitle it, like, you know, like woof woof or something like that. Um, and I think in the ones we watched, they just decided not to put anything there. Okay. Cause some of the, and I mean, you know, for the record, I know nothing about Japanese. So I'm, uh, this is probably why, but for, for some of the animals, like, occasionally it sounded like, oh, that's just chittering or whatever. But every once in a while it felt like, oh, that seems like a plant, like syllables, you know, specific syllables occurring in sequence. But I guess there wasn't, they're just animal noises. Yeah. And I, like, I could have missed it, but that's how it appeared to me. Um, also like there were songs in this movie that weren't subtitled in case, in case you are, um, wanting to see this movie, by the way, don't think I even found a dubbed version available online. I did find you could stream it in Japanese without subtitles if you wanted to go find that. Um, okay, so so kind of the reason I bring this up about this being a quote-unquote kids movie is that um, when I was researching it, I would find all these people who were giving it positive reviews, but all of them were people who saw it when they were kids. Um, and they were like, where can I find this movie? I remember I loved it and I can't find it anywhere. Whereas if when I read reviews of people who saw it as adults, they're like, this is interesting for historical reasons, but it's not like a great movie to watch just for entertainment. Um, it was pretty harsh. I was going to say that's about the most faint praise you can give to any work <laughs> of art. It's like historically we have to talk about this. Um, I mean, I, I don't know. And I did read that, uh, Tale of the White Serpent is a little bit better and that, uh, Hayao Miyazaki was very much influenced by that film. I don't know. I think, I think given how much, how much a part of popular culture around the world, Japanese animation is, this is probably interesting for anybody to watch. I kind of do wonder about those those people who saw it as kids, how they would feel about it if they watched it now as adults. Um, and I just kind of wonder, David, if you ever had an experience where you watched maybe a TV show or a movie that you hadn't seen since you were little and you were disappointed when you saw it as an adult. Or you were like, oh, this is just how I remember it. Gosh, so I think disappointment is is kind of almost a universal circumstance with those things. Um I know it, it kind of the polar opposite. Uh, there was there was a Disney Channel original movie called Brink about uh, <laughs> high schoolers who love to um, to rollerblade. And uh, I loved that when I was a kid. And then the Disney Plus streaming service came out and they had it available. And I was, you know, speaking to my wife and like, oh, you have to see this. It's great. And I watched it, and I love it. It's great. It's wonderful, <laughs> like, weird B. It's very funny. Highly recommend. <laughs> kind of to your question, that's kind of the one positive, like, the positive surprise. Because almost everything else I remember, like, really loving as a child, uh, I don't think holds up. Some of the stuff that that maybe impacted me, but I didn't love kind of came back in a strong way though. Cause like, I remember being really terrified of 
Sleeping Beauty. Like, I remember that being one of the scariest movies and revisiting it as an adult. Like, that thing is a treasure trove. It's gorgeous. Same thing for, you know, a lot of those Disney movies that were, some of them were pretty frightening for for a kid, but going back to them, you kind of see, like, what, like, the intricacy of the craft going into it. Um, It's, I, I think it's easier to appreciate when you're not, you know, when you're no longer five or whatever it is. Yeah, there's... I have I have trouble thinking of something a situation I had that was comparable because all the stuff I love is Disney and that's not the only thing but just like that's what comes to mind and all of that stuff I watch kind of continually from the time I was a kid to now you know there was never <laughs> like a gap where I didn't watch it <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's, I mean, that stuff is so, to be fair, that stuff is so high quality too. Um, I do want to, oh, I guess I can kind of think of something. I told you that when I was like a kid, like that was the era of Sesame Street. Um, And when I used to work as an English teacher, I would occasionally get uh, Sesame Street videos to, to show to my students. My, uh, well, I think I might've used it with kids, but I used it with adults as well. Um, because the English was simple, but it was also funny for, for adults, but I hadn't seen Sesame Street since I was a kid and I was watching, (laughs) there's like a series where, um, Grover's a waiter and this cranky old man, I forget the Muppet's name, but he goes to order and Grover's like a horrible waiter. Um, and every time he screws up his order and every like little, um, mini episode is kind of teaching kids some like concept like up or down or like whatever um but it's so funny and uh yeah that was that was like a pleasant surprise i'm like oh sesame street is golden yeah (laughs) um you you don't think there was anything you really liked as a kid that you you were really disappointed by at some point no man i have great taste i always have had okay so i guess what are your kind of closing thoughts about magic boy Honestly, just super, super fun. Again, again, I referenced it a little bit earlier, but the the plot is really all over the place. The protagonists are no parameters to his skill set. Like it, it doesn't. There's not a lot of scene to scene coherence, but the the animation really is a marvel. And I think that alone, you know, the film's I think eighty eight minutes. Uh, that alone is a good enough reason to spend time with it. I think I think it's really great. Yeah, I think if nothing else, it's interesting. You might as well watch it. I'm going to go ahead and thank my sources. So as I said earlier, if you're interested in the intricacies of, of uh, animation, I would really check these out, and we'll have these in the show notes too. We have pelias.net. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce it. It's P-E-L-L-E-A-S.net. Um, also Nathaniel Thompson at Turner Classic Movies, um, also just Turner Classic Movies. There's a little profile on this movie, tvtropes.org, um, also Washi's blog and Wikipedia as always. If you would like to get in touch with us, we are on Twitter at Mayday Matinee. We're Maybe Today Matinee on Instagram and Facebook. And we're maybe today matinee at gmail.com if you want to send an email. And we're also maybe today matinee on Patreon. Check in next week for 1973's Fantastic Planet as the final movie in our animation theme. 
I'm Monica. I'm David. And this is Maybe Today Matinee. (laughs) 